0: Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for our conversation, we're going to be looking at the worship in the New Testament and the hymns that are there and how that informs our worship today in the church. So, Scott, what, what would you say is the best way um, to define worship? You know, it's been defined multiple ways. Um, some people think it's just singing. Uh, I've heard, like, uh, you know, I know Tim Keller defines it as uh, attributing ultimate worth to something. How would you say would be a great way to define worship?
1: That's a good question because of the way the word is used so often in our church context today. Uh I I have the privilege of speaking in a lot of churches, and it is not at all uncommon for a designated portion of a Sunday morning service being called worship time. And I would say the most common use of the word today uh, would be that it refers to the praise and worship time prior to a sermon increasingly people stand up and maybe sing for 10, 15, some churches as much as 30 minutes at a time, uh, raising their hands, uh, spending their time largely focused on God um, and and whatever else is in their minds and hearts and souls at that time. Uh, It's not that I think I know what everybody's doing. Uh, So for many people, worship refers to that Period of a Sunday morning service where people are singing in praise to God. Other people think that it would uh, that it refers to the whole Sunday morning service. So the Germans uh, call Sunday morning service Gottesdienst, service to God, and that has a tradition that many people would refer to Sunday morning service the entire time, including the sermon, including Sunday school, including some of the fellowship as Sunday morning worship. It's the time where Christians gather together. There are others, uh, and this, this should be recognized for what it is as a very interesting development, who think that worship largely refers to the Eucharist or Lord's Supper uh, dimension of an early Christian worship service or uh, to our times. So in our church, Uh, We have a Eucharist service every Sunday, so the last third of the service is sort of um, all devoted to taking the Lord's Supper together, and it is seen as the climax or as the direction of everything else that occurs. The singing, the praying, the reading of Scripture, and the sermon all leads us to the Eucharist service. So I see those as three dominant ways. I wonder if you have any any observations on that Chaz, because I would have one more, uh, a feature of it that I think we need to take a look at.
0: Yeah, you know, I think when when I think of uh, worship, some of the times uh, a great way in talking about the service I've heard it explained is that uh, the service isn't the church; it's a and it's an expression of the church. And I think you know when we look at at worship, yeah, we need to look at what we're doing on the weekend, but we also uh, need to look at how because of who God is and what he's done and the life that he's calling us to live, how does that affect us, you know, the rest of the way yeah. in, in how we worship and how, yeah. you know, our lives are, um, you know, lived out as living sacrifices, yeah. like it's talked about in Hebrews.
1: Yeah. And, and, and this is where uh, I think there's a great book by a man named David Peterson, Engaging with God. And this, this book was a book I read many years ago, and it made a big impression on me, and I thought, this guy's right. And it was the emphasis that all of life is worship, not just the gathering of the saints in a Sunday morning service, and not just when we are gathered together with other Christians, but all of life is worship. So that the Sunday morning worship time however you want to describe it or limit it, to the music, to the sermon, to the whole service, to the Eucharist service, uh, to the Lord's Supper time, uh, however you want to do it, that is but an expression of an ongoing life of worship. So I would like to say, uh, and then you can tell me again what Tim Keller said, I, I would like to say that we live a life of worship to the degree that our hearts and faces are turned toward God in all that we say and do from in all our waking hours. Uh, something like that. So that worship is uh, something we do all the time and we bring to a specific focal direction when we gather together. Uh, but that is only a an instance of what we should be doing at all times.
0: Yeah, so the worship's kind of the carrying out of where we understand our meaning deriving from our, our worth deriving from being that of, you know, God obviously as Christians as followers of Jesus we understand, you know, that coming from him and so whether it is singing in a church service or whether it's our daily work, whether it's parenting, whether it's you know whatever we find ourselves doing, um, we're doing that as an expression of who God's informing us to be in the meaning that that we have coming out of that.
1: So Ke- Keller wants to say that worship is ascribing worth to something?
0: I would say, um, from what I understand of yeah. how he communicated it, is that it's um, uh, us uh, uh, ascribing worth to God and that our, our worth coming from that yeah, as a yeah. result.
1: And, and I, think, I think there would be a narrower usage of that that I think Keller would agree with, of course, would be whenever we are, let's say, consciously devoted to God and in song, in thought, in writing, uh, in pre- in preaching, uh, where we're sort of directing our thoughts very consciously to God in praise, but that he would also say we by the way we live our lives, I think mm-hmm. that we ascribe worth to God mm-hmm. by our discipleship, by the way we conduct our work, by the way we drive, uh, in all that we say and do. So, uh, you know... Um, Worship is a big dimension of Christian worship today, of Christian service, of of uh, Sunday morning gatherings, and that is why, um, you know, there's a lot of interest today uh, in colleges. I saw this where I was teaching before, but even here at Northern, uh, we have an emphasis on worship, and uh, Sam Hamstrom, my colleague, has this degree, of Master of Arts in Worship, that is thriving at, at Northern. And I think it's because there's such an interest today in worship and so many, uh, I've, I've seen this with so many of our students here at Northern, mm-hmm. they kind of want to conduct and lead worship services that we have here. And it's encouraging to me that so many uh, see the value in the worship service and they're not just preachers. So I, I have a lot of value. But again, for me, worship uh, fluctuates from the more narrower definitions of, of the Lord's Supper, of even sermon time, of the reading of Scripture, of the singing, to and I would like to see see us expand it to realize that all of our life is to be seen as worshiping God.
0: So now let's get into the the New Testament some, and what does the what would you say the New Testament tells us uh, about worship?
1: Uh, yeah, and and this is where. Uh, We get a little bit lost because our understanding of worship so often is narrowed to what happens on Sunday, that those early Christians, it's not until the apostles that we start to see uh, ecclesial gatherings that could be moved in the direction of worship, but Howard Marshall long ago taught us that the word uh, worship is rarely connected to early Christian gatherings, that it's more connected to the ideas of instruction, education, uh, etc., catechism formation, rather than to the idea of gathering to worship. They did worship when they gathered together. But let's, you you take a word, uh, a Greek word like proskuneo, and this is a famous little piece of writing in the Gospel of Matthew where Mark or Luke might have an expression that would be that the person uh, knelt down before Jesus or begged before Jesus. And Matthew uses the word proskuneo, which would be worship. So we have an indication already in the New Testament, uh, in the first book of the New Testament, that Jesus was worshiped already during his lifetime. And what this means is people were bowing down before him in an act of worship, adoring his capacity, his ability and supplicating him, uh, asking him, requesting, pleading with him because they believed he was the Lord of life and he could accomplish something. So if we have that indication. Uh, as I said already, there, there's not a lot of indication that when the early Christians gathered together, they gathered to worship. Although uh, the absence of that language is probably silence of something that is assumed Rather than something that we should say they didn't gather to worship. Very clearly, by the second century, uh, we have extensive evidence that the early Christians were gathering together to worship with one another, to worship God. And there so they, are. So they may yeah. not
0: have been necessarily singing in the same way that the, we've. Said that there can be a narrow definition of worship, but when they gathered for their times together, they were focused on the, as you said, the ministry and the learning and the teaching and and their community um, and, and fellowship with one another in their time together.
1: Well, I think that there is pretty clear evidence already. I mean, these are Jews, largely Jewish Christians. And then there's, as the church begins to expand into Gentiles, the gatherings took on the flavor of synagogues and other types of of gatherings in the ancient world, and there would have been singing already. I mean, the Old Testament, look, the book of Psalms is a collection of songs, songs that Jews learned to sing by memorization in connection with temple worship and then expanded into homes. So the Psalter was something that early Christians would have known. And we know that at Qumran, for instance, that people uh that the Qumran people Essenes, I think they were um, the Qumran covenanters uh they sang together, and Jesus in the Gospels is already talking about singing with his apostles, so uh, on the night in which he was betrayed, he had been singing after the Passover, so this is a part. Of Jewish gatherings. It doesn't have to be connected to an official worship at the temple. It was also a family-based gathering at a thing like Passover where it was important to sing the Hallel Psalms from the Book of Psalms. So they did this. But uh, there is plenty of evidence in the New Testament that the early Christians were singing uh, and when they gathered they sang. Uh, I, just, I just want to be careful that we don't think this is just at a, a Sunday morning service, because that's beginning to read into the New Testament things that we don't know yet. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul says this. This is a very interesting—this is someone opening up a door for us to, to, to steal a glance inside to see what's going on in an early Christian worship service. What then, Paul says— shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So Paul is saying right now that when Christians gather together, for whatever reason, around meals, uh, around the Lord's Supper, all these things uh, were tied together in a much looser but more charismatic and spontaneous way. That they some people were expected to bring a hymn uh, that they could either sing themselves. I, I think the solo idea doesn't develop till the fourth century, uh, but they were already singing. And I would like to call our attention to something, a powerful passage in Colossians uh, that I I don't want to equate worship now with singing, but I we are moving in the direction of songs and hymns in the New
0: Testament so this may be an example of something that they could have possibly sung during their yeah. one of their hymns that yeah. they brought to their worship service. but even Paul.
1: before that we have a, a statement in Colossians that clarifies what what they thought of music Now listen to this Colossians 3:16 Paul is talking about the importance of the word of God let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Now, we listen to this, you know, I'm a seminary professor, I think. Now, this is a good time for expository preaching or theological preaching. And this is the time to talk about a sermon. But listen to what Paul says. He says, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, how, through what, doing what? Through psalms, through hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So if we're going to talk about hymns, the early Christians believed that they instructed and taught and brought wisdom to one another. They admonished one another through song, through psalms, through hymns, so that what they sang was a form of education and instruction in the church. Mm. And I'm incredibly grateful for... The emphasis upon music in our church with our pastor Jay Greener and with Amanda Holm Rosengren. Both of them are accomplished musicians, but both of them know the importance of music for forming Christian theology and discipleship. I grew up in a church that was big and singing. I mean, we sang all the time. And it was over time that I realized how influential in my own thinking. Hymns had been. Some of my theology was formed in hymns. Sometimes what was formed wasn't very good yeah. <laughs> because some hymns aren't that good theologically, mm-hmm. depending on who was writing them and at what period in the history of hymns. And I, I don't know that story all that well. But I do know that hymns have a huge impact. So, so Chaz, I, I would say uh, that we don't want to equate worship with just singing. But neither do we want to equate singing with just sort of a, uh, we're singing directly to God. The Apostle Paul thought that music was central to the early Christians' spiritual, theological, and educational formation. Yeah. It's really pretty amazing. I think we should uh, think, think about this. There, are, I, I don't know how long a church service lasted for you.
0: It's oh, about an hour, hour and a half at Parkview. Yeah. Okay.
1: And how much of it is a sermon?
0: Probably 30 to 40 minutes. 30 to 40 no. minutes.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the rest of the time, how much of the time is, is singing?
0: Um, it would. I would, would say between 15 to 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Yeah.
1: All right. So let's just say that you've got um, a third to a fifth of your service.
0: Yeah.
1: I think many times... Churches don't think theoretically enough of the value of that person yeah. who's leading worship mm-hmm. theologically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and know, its
0: significance in the formation of a church that's and of right. the people in the church. Yeah, you know, this,
1: this is a big thing. Say, uh, in, in all the mm. churches that think theoretically about what happens in a service, but uh, one of the more recent writers who's been very effective, in my opinion, about communicating this idea is Jamie uh, Smith at Calvin, Uh, where he talks about uh, the formative value of what happens in a church service or in a gathering. Mm -hmm. He's really not talking just about church services. Well, I think I am deeply grateful because Amanda at our church and Jay, although Jay does a little bit more of the preaching and Amanda does a little bit more of the music, they coordinate the music more. She's very educated. She's very theological. And she brings into the music her theology, and that shapes the selections. And I, I find that they have a rich selection of music. Um, and so I think we need to value the worship leader more theologically for what they're contributing. Yeah, and there's a and lot the of churches. I've been Yeah, I've been in churches where I've spoken for 30 minutes, but we sang for sometimes as much as 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And frankly, sometimes I've been in those churches where the worship leader was pretty careless and sloppy mm-hmm. and the and the songs weren't all that profound. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've been in others far more where the worship leader was far more thoughtful, theologically sensitive, and brought that to bear on the music that was chosen
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it becomes a part of the instruction of the church. So mm-hmm. if the worship gathering uh, of Sunday morning is all seen as worship, then I'm all for us giving higher value to music as having great instructional value in the yeah, church.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I found this at Parkview too. One of my best stories to to hear that we were doing well in that front and that this exact thing was happening was I was teaching a class and a gal came up after and was just... Um, you're just so impressed and so moved by one of the songs, an original song that we had actually done around Christmas time, and uh, she told me I was amazed how much I learned from the words and listening and, and repetitive ah, listening of you know what it really meant for Jesus to be God and God came to earth. I never really fully understood that until I began singing it and I began you know listening to it repeatedly that it really sunk into my heart and it sunk into you know how I look at my world. And yeah. I think you know obviously I think that's why Paul said that this yeah. is so important and so formative to our, our Christian life and living to being able to to worship well, to be listening in a way that that's theologically accurate and honest and um, productive for really the whole church.
1: Well, this is why um, you know we asked the question, all right, so we have in the New Testament, clearly, they gather together. They do different things. One of which is to take the Lord's Supper. One of which is to hear instructions about the gospel and how to live this life. To read the letters of Paul and Peter, uh, because these became formative in the early church. But do we have any indications of what those hymns looked like? Yeah. Well, this is um, this is where uh, New Testament scholarship in the last 150 years has dug and dug and is very is pretty widespreadly convinced that we have two very clear hymns in the New Testament and probably more. Uh, the one that I want to look at this morning is Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. and probably the more famous one is Philippians 2 verses 6 through 11. And most people would say these are early Christian hymns. And how would we know that they're early Christian hymns? Well, the uh, scholars are convinced that the way we find these things, and this is in part dialectical, it's because we see them here, and then we go investigate what hymns are like. There's a great scholar at Regent University in Virginia named Matthew Gordley, who's done some great work comparing New Testament passages that are probably hymns with early Greek and Roman hymns, mm-hmm. and he finds lots of parallels. Mm-hmm. But when we find introductory formulas that are like transitional moments that take us from something being said to all of a sudden we have this set of lines, Colossians two, uh, Colossians 1 verse 15 says, who is the image of God? That word who is a relative pronoun that connects us to a new set of thinking. But it's not just that. It's all of a sudden we have language that is not typical for the Apostle Paul. We have clipped, short sentences that can be almost poetic or rhythmical in their import. Uh, There tends to be a presence of participles over verbs. Uh, Narrative seems to be struck out. And all of a sudden now we have just this one section and then it can be resumed. So verse 21 can, read, can be read right with verse 14 and you don't miss a beat. Uh, sometimes there's unusual vocabulary and in this hymn right here, Colossians 1:15 to 20, we see some stuff that we don't see in any of the other Pauline letters, some language, Dense theological formulations are a part of it as well. So here's what Paul says. He's talking about in whom Christ the Son, We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and then suddenly he's talking about redemption. He goes, he launches into a glorious set of lines about who Jesus is, and then he brings us back at the end of this, drops us back. We've been in Narnia, as it were. He drops us back in the house uh, with stuff about their redemption. Once you were alienated, here's what he says: Who is the who is the image? This son is the image of the invisible God. Here's language untypical for Paul. Firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That's an extensive statement there. He is the, This is like the second verse. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, and notice the expansive reach of the gospel, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, all I want to say is, most scholars of the book of Colossians and earliest Christianity who study these this passage, most of them think this is a uh, evidence of an early Christian
0: hymn. Yeah,
1: and I and I think they're probably right. And I mean, it's
0: not just the one particular reason; it's the holistic yes. thing of the untypical language, all this stuff you know, coming the, together. The, the grammar seeming yeah. to set it up, the the vocab that Paul uses or doesn't use, as well as how it compares and contrasts to the the normal everyday songs and and literature yeah. of yeah, the day. Yeah.
1: Now, uh, you know, we're, we're running out of time here. But the one thing I wanted to say is, if this is an instance of early Christian hymn, mm-hmm. I think we can learn a lot. Yeah. Notice how focused it is on Christ.
0: Mm.
1: Notice how focused it is on what God has done in Christ, what he is accomplishing in Christ. It goes back to the beginning of time, to creation. Christ is the creator. It goes forward to what God is doing and will do. He will reconcile all things to himself. It focuses on the cross by the blood of the cross. Resurrection is implied because he has now broken the bonds of death and all creation has been set loose. This is a new creation in Him. So there's such a focus, let's say it's Christo focused, theofocused, rather than this, there's not a trace here of the experience of Paul or the early Christians on what they felt about this. The ardor and the enthusiasm of the hymn is felt by reading the words and just the breathtaking, uh, it, it leaves you gasping, thinking, wow, this is an accomplishment to think in early Christianity that the man who was wearing sandals alongside the Sea of Galilee was the creator of all things. All creation is aimed at him, and he has reconciled all things, visible and invisible. The principalities and the powers have been subdued by this son, and they're being brought to bear in this one hymn. It's a beautiful set of hymns, and it gives us instructions of how how to write hymns today. But just think about this. If they instructed and admonished one another through hymns, this hymn would do exactly that yeah. it's brilliant in mm-hmm. that way
0: mm-hmm. so it meets all the characteristics and if we want to look at you know worship and how you know it transforms us really the the best and only place we can go is to continue to focus more, and more on more the object of our worship being yes. that uh, of yeah. jesus and that's where true transformation and I, comes and, about. and you
1: know chaz i would say that the degradation of music occurs when we begin to sing about our own experiences mm more than the object, God, whom we worship. When we focus more on ourselves, music becomes navel-gazing. It becomes very egocentric, and the more we focus on God and what God has done in Christ, the more in tune we will be with true and genuine worship, which brings us back to the large understanding of worship, Mm -hmm. which is our whole life where our heart and face are oriented toward God in everything we say and do and that's I, I think that's what uh that's what worship is and that's what I think we should be doing. I, I hope that's what we're doing here at Northern Seminary.
0: Absolutely. Well, we've hoped this conversation has been helpful to think through worship and how uh, we can involve worship in all aspects of our life, as well as the uh, more of the specific Sunday morning or Saturday or whenever we regularly gather for our services. But uh, we hope today that you have a great day worshiping, and uh, thanks so much for joining us.